Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Well, Guys, welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things. I am joined here today um, with Ben Eckstein. He is coming to us from North Carolina. He is a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder and other anxiety disorders. Um, And he has his own private practice called Bull City Anxiety, uh, which he established in 2014. So um, Ben reached out to me and wanted to shed light on a topic that I've always wanted to also talk about, which is how dads or paternal figures in the family system can also be really impacted um, and kind of honestly struggle in plain sight uh, when it comes to postpartum or even perinatal issues. So, you know, as much as women, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, as much as moms struggle, um, and we definitely need to keep churning away with our work in that area. Uh, Ben, I think you'd also agree that, that dads can struggle too. And, you know, as, as much as we struggle to reach those moms who are in a time of crisis or in the trenches, we have even additional barriers to reaching and accessing those paternal figures. So we're here to talk about all of that today. Uh, good for, for paternal figures out there. Good for moms, good for expecting parents, um, any loved ones for sure. So, um, Ben, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and then we'll jump into it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jenna. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I, I think you covered it well. So yeah, this is something that I am pretty passionate about. You know, I think uh, postpartum care in general, I think is super important. Uh, it's one of the things that I love about your podcast is just the emphasis on taking care of moms in this place where they're really vulnerable. And I am a father of four kids. And so, uh, yeah, this is something that I'm super familiar with myself. And I I think uh, not just as a father, but I know just being in that role of the non-childbearing parent, whoever that may be, could be, could be dad, could be some other caretaker, same-sex partners, you know, that I think there are so many different versions of this. And we know that just being the person who has the baby is, is not the only thing that determines what this experience is like. And uh, yeah, I think there are lots of folks in these roles who are struggling as well. So yeah, I think it was something that I did want to talk about and just bring some attention to here. Awesome. And you brought up a really good point that I want to absolutely underscore that it is not just the biological 
uh, male dad, right? Like if you identify as the paternal figure in that family system, um, or if you certainly, if you identify as the maternal figure in that family system, regardless of what it is, right? Like, even though we might be saying, um, mom and dad, we're really speaking more largely about the maternal figure and the paternal figure. Um, because like you said, Ben, even if you, uh, even if there are two women in a partnership, there's, there might be someone who kind of adopts or identifies more as the maternal figure versus the paternal figure. And that can still totally apply to what it is that we're talking about here. So, um, yeah, if you just want to speak to that a little bit, it's not just the dad, it can kind of be any caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think just kind of more broadly in thinking about postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, you know, we're really talking about this sort of set of circumstances. And I at least think about these other places where OCD shows up, right? So like uh, something like uh, nurses in hospitals dealing with contamination, right? So like, we don't call that like hospital OCD or like nurse OCD, right? We recognize this broader pattern of, hey, this is about contamination or this is about harm or, right? Like that it's really this underlying stuff that's there, even though, yes, we have this circumstance that adds this extra vulnerability. Um, and so I, I think with having a kid, there are all of these stressors and things that make people really vulnerable. And not all of those things are limited to the person who had the child biologically. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to this. Um, you know, I, I, I know we've, we can go into some of the symptoms and what this looks like, but just in thinking about that, again, just broader kind of pattern of symptoms of intrusive thoughts having to do with harm, having to do with kind of harm by neglect of not, not doing enough to take care of someone. And again, I think this stuff applies to anyone in that parental role, um, much in the same way that we would, we would talk about, again, the nurse at the hospital or that person on the subway platform, right? Like that we don't call that a subway obsession. We say, hey, that's a fear of losing control. Um, and again, I think this, those underlying sort of sorts of themes, I think are true, regardless of what the circumstance is. Absolutely. And you're calling attention to something that I sprinkle in in some podcasts, um, this issue of the subtypes. And the subtypes, I think, can provide us a lot of, you know, good clinical information right off the bat. Um, I certainly don't think that we should get, you know, toss the baby out with a bathwater type of situation, but I do worry that this is a perfect example of how when we, um, you know, just over talk about the subtypes or over you know, claim those subtypes, we miss people, you know, they don't fit into that subtype, you know, I'm not postpartum, I'm not a mom, so that can't be that. Um, and I right. worry about those caregivers who clearly are identifying with the more generic sense of uncertainty and with the more overarching theme here, which you and I know is just doubt, right? And the intolerance of uncertainty, uh, fear of losing control, so on and so forth, those core fears, but because it doesn't fit into what someone identifies as what they know is what they believe is OCD, they, we miss them. Um, and we know that OCD can latch on to whatever it is that you value, right? So right. it can latch on to that person in the subway, it can latch on to your baby. And it, it doesn't have to just be your newborn baby. Um, of course, there are so many other elements that are happening like during that baby phase for really other important reasons that we'll talk about. But it can happen certainly after six months, after 12 months. I don't think that there's really any 
limit, right? Like, okay, now you're in the clear, you're immune now. Um, I, I like to let people know that no one is immune to this. I was open in, in my podcast about my struggles. I, I went into motherhood very naive, almost ignorant. Like I know everything there is to know. I would never do a ritual. I will never check my baby in the middle of the night. And very clearly it became like the stakes are too high. Like screw all of that. The stakes are just right. too high. So um, OCD latches on to what it is that you value, what you feel is important, uh, what you don't tolerate uncertainty about and what you feel responsible for. And what what exemplifies that more than having a baby? It's what we value. It's what we feel is important and we feel responsible for it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I think I couldn't agree more around the subtypes. Right. And I think that there is obviously some utility to these things, right? They, they have, they have their use. I think that there is something helpful about being able to put a name to it. And, and I think that's especially true here, you know, that I, I think so much of that experience of postpartum anxiety and OCD does boil down to this sort of misappraisal of these thoughts, right? So a thought shows up and we flag it as dangerous or we need to respond to it in some way. And so I think if we have this label where you can say, hey, like this is something that parents do, everybody has these thoughts, right? Like it's called postpartum anxiety, it's called postpartum OCD. People have these thoughts, they misinterpret them, they get caught doing all these different behavioral things in response to it. You know, so I, I think that ability to label it and see it is super important. But again, we, we don't want to miss what's actually happening here, which is, uh, yeah, this is OCD latching onto a circumstance. And, and as you said, you know, I think having a baby, having a child in general, opens up this whole new sort of genre of possibilities for OCD, right? It's pretty ripe territory. Amazing. Yeah. And you mentioned it wasn't in our notes, so I'm going to go off uh, key here a little bit, but yeah. you're mentioning what I think is so important for new parents to know, um, especially new parents, which is that the intrusive experiences are not the problem, right? It's our misappraisal of them as being significant yeah. and dangerous. And, oh my gosh, I had that experience, whether it's an image, a feeling, an urge, that must mean something. Um, and, and it's that misappraisal that kind of fires the rest of the problematic system. So can you talk about just very basically kind of that whole experience? Because I want people to know that it's not the images, it's not the experience of these things because we all, we've done research to indicate that everyone experiences these things, especially new parents. But why, why does it go haywire for some people? Yeah, so... You know, I think there are a bunch of reasons for that, but I, you know, to your point, we have a lot of research that now tells us, hey, everybody has these thoughts. Um, and there is plenty of research that looks at specifically parents in that postpartum period. Um, and so we know moms and dads both have these thoughts. Um, we know the content of those thoughts is not different, right? So when, when we start kind of scanning for what are the types of thoughts, you know, is it thoughts about SIDS? Is it thoughts about contamination, right? So we know that all the parents, moms, dads, all the caregivers, they're all having a bunch of these thoughts. The content isn't really different. And at the end of the day, the only thing that really changes is that appraisal, right? Like it's, it's the meaning that we attribute to the thoughts and how we interpret them. Um, so I think there are a bunch of things that go into that. Um, and I, I often think about I, for a lot of my clients, not just in thinking about postpartum anxiety, but just uh, kind of OCD in general, 
when we're talking about intrusive thoughts, people are often really uh, hesitant to have these thoughts in places that feel more important. Um, and so it's really common that I'll hear like, oh, I, I really don't want to have these thoughts when I go take that test, or I really don't want to have these thoughts when I go home for Christmas, or, you know, that these places where they really want it to be amazing and magical. They're going on vacation. They don't want it to be interrupted by those thoughts, right? So I think those places where we try to protect ourselves and kind of preserve this amazing experience, we're actually making ourselves a lot more vulnerable. Um, and I think this certainly applies with that postpartum period where we have these expectations about how it's going to be so amazing and magical. And it's this time that we should cherish because it's just gonna be uh, so incredible. And we're just kind of setting ourselves up for not just the presence of the thoughts, but for now starting to resist them, right? So now we're having this experience that we didn't wanna have and we're gonna be more likely to try to push back against it. Um, and so we're gonna try to control it. We're gonna try to stop having those thoughts. Um, and again, we're, we're more likely to now assign that meaning of, oh, I have this thought. So that means I'm a bad parent or that means I'm going to act on this thought or again, like what kind of person would have that kind of thought? You know. So again, it's I think it is this situation where we get really just kind of set up for that misappraisal because we go into it with these expectations. Um, you know, I think it's also notable that, you know, first time parents do tend to struggle more with this stuff. Um, and, I, and I think that there is uh, something to that idea of, I get the expectations, right? Like that we have, have yet to have our kind of bubble burst and, and we don't recognize that actually like this is a pretty challenging situation. It's not always magical and amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that does contribute to it. That's so interesting. And it's something that I've known and experienced, but never uh, really verbalized in that way. And it's just so true. It's like, I remember when I held my baby for the first time, I, I had what I thought was a pretty traumatic delivery and a lot of things led up to that. But I remember when I first held my baby, that was when, that was the first time that expectations did not line up with reality. Um, yeah. and that was like the breaking, like things shattered, shattered at that point. Um, and that happens for all parents at some point, whether we're able to talk about it or not. You know, I think so many times new moms, new dads, they talk about it because in society, it's not really, uh, it's kind of taboo, right? To say that parenting is hard and yeah, I, I needed a break for my kids or yeah, I didn't bond with my baby right away. It's hard right. to get those real authentic uh, truths from people until after the fact. Like, I feel like I only ever really heard the nitty gritty of motherhood when I started to tell my nitty gritty. And it was like, well, why didn't you tell me that before? Like, I would have been, I would have expected it more. I feel like so much is societal too. We, we set each other up for these expectations because other people have set us up for this expectation. It's just so complicated and hazy. Um, so it's obviously more than hormones, right? So we're talking about it's societal. We're building up other dads to have this experience and this expectation and, um, there are behavioral and environmental aspects of it. Also a genetic component. So talk to us about how it's not just hormones that could affect kind of the mom. It can also affect the dad too. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, I do want to be clear to say, so we know hormones are part of this to some degree. You know, I think that they're there is research about this stuff. I think we are still unclear as to exactly how 
hormones impact these things, but we know that they do. Um, and so I, I think that there are these links between hormones and you name the mental health problem, right? So that I, I think there's a lot of study around this, particularly with menstrual cycles as well, and looking at the exacerbation of symptoms, not just of anxiety, but depression, OCD, PTSD, right? There's a bunch of studies about this stuff. And so we know hormones are part of it, but again, we also know they're not all of it. Um, and so, yeah, there are these situational, situational, and as you said, environmental factors. So, you know, I think looking at stress, which is really, really high in that postpartum phase. Um, the lack of sleep is another piece of it. Most new parents are not sleeping well. There's a ton of additional responsibility that we have, and we are dealing day to day with this really vulnerable little person, right? And so there, there is this kind of perfect storm of stuff happening that where if somebody was already prone to anxiety or OCD, we're throwing all of the factors at them that are, that are going to contribute to the exacerbation of that pre-existing anxiety or OCD. Um, and then we, of course, throw on top of that, that parents are going to be, certainly during the pandemic, they're going to be more isolated. They're going to have less access to their hobbies, their interests, exercise, right? Like all of these things that are, that tend to be protective factors also start to get whittled down. So again, I think it is kind of that perfect storm of stuff. Um, we also, and I think this is particularly true of first-time parents, we also don't know exactly what we're getting ourselves into. And so I think it can become really hard to know uh, kind of where we've gone astray there. And so I, I think about for myself, uh, so I have four kids and no one believes me when I say this, but it's true that I, the most stress that I've experienced as a parent has not been while having four children. It was while I had one child, right? Like that it's, it's kind of hard to fathom, but it's true that like that was the hardest parenting experiences that I've had were with that first kid. Um, and it has not necessarily gotten harder as I've added more children. Um, and I think a lot of this was like, I didn't know where that line was, right? So like our first kid was pretty hard. She was a colicky baby, right? Like she was pretty challenging. Um, and I, I love her dearly. She's a, a wonderful child, but she's hard. Um, and I, I didn't know at what point that crossed this line and just saying like, yeah, everyone tells you, hey, like kids are going to cry. Parenting is hard, right? Like people tell us this stuff, but I, I can't tell you how many times we would be sitting there with our kid, doing all the things to try to soothe her, to try to get her to sleep, doing all this stuff. And then just hear from people like, yeah, like kids cry. <laughs> like that's what they do. Like it's really hard. And so, yeah, like we, it really wasn't until we had our second kid where we're like, oh, wait a minute. Like that, like, that wasn't what all the parents are going through, right? Like that experience we had where we were struggling, um, that's not always what it's like. Um, and so I, I think it's just so hard to get that kind of, uh, like, I don't know, like to do that sort of litmus test, right? Like to get some perspective on seeing like, yeah, where is this not what it's supposed to be? Like at what point does it cross that line? Because like, we just don't have a point of reference. Yeah, I, as a, as a mom to an only, I resonate with that a lot just because I feel like I get stuck often in like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to compare it to. Do I, yeah. I, I don't have another child to compare it to. If I try to compare him to anybody else, you know, am I really getting the full story? So yeah, it's, 
it's, it's, I can imagine. And I'm glad that you're validating for onlys out there that having one can be harder at times than yeah. having multiple and it can work the opposite way too. It's also relative, sure. but, um, yeah, let's talk about, I have a big issue with like the prevalence rates that exist. I think, um, yeah. for women, what we see is, you know, two to 3% of women who had a baby, um, experience postpartum OCD within six months or so on and so forth. I think, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are. I have been pretty vocal about how I believe that that's actually way higher. Um, uh, in other podcasts, I go on to talk about in the postpartum phase for moms, we don't even ask dads. To my knowledge, my husband was never asked about anything. Um, at most, every six-week checkup, I was given the Edinburgh uh, depression scale, which is very face valid. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing to fill out if you're doing it honestly. And then to give back to this angelic-looking secretary, it's like... I, I, it would, it would take a woman in like extreme crisis probably to be very yeah. honest about those questions. Um, and even so it's just depression, right? It's not getting at anxiety or OCD or trauma or any of the other things that we should be screening for. Um, so all of that is to say that I think the prevalence for moms is so much higher than it actually is being reported online. What do you think about for dads? Yeah. What I, I, I agree with you that I, I think what we know about the prevalence rate, uh, I have to assume is sort of an underrepresentation. You know, that I think that there is a lot of stigma that comes with this stuff. I think there's a lot of fear of what will happen if we answer these questions truthfully. Um, and so I think that is, you know, if somebody asks me a question about, hey, did you have a thought about harming your baby? a lot of parents are going to say, no, who would ever have that thought, right? Like that they, they don't want someone to misinterpret that. Um, and I, I'll say like, I see this a lot, even for folks who know all about OCD, who know that, hey, just because I had that thought, that doesn't mean anything. And even those folks who know this are still sometimes hesitant filling out these forms because they don't know who's on the receiving end of that form, right? Like they don't know if they're going to understand OCD and what it's all about. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is understandably a lot of fear filling out these kinds of forms. And so, yeah, I think that results in people not getting the treatment that they need. Um, and I think it results in us not really being able to get a solid grasp on just how prevalent this stuff is. Um, so yeah, I think this is true for moms and I, I think it's certainly true for dads. I think sometimes for some of those same reasons, right? That they don't, don't want people to misinterpret these answers. Um, I think there, and again, maybe this kind of gets at some of the things that, that can start to look a little bit different for dads. And we were talking about kind of that misappraisal and you know how we attribute meaning to to some of these thoughts. And so I think some of that goes into our expectations for ourselves going into that parenting experience. And I, I think a lot of uh, dads in particular, but you know, I, I think that sometimes that parent who is not the parent who had a child feels this additional sense of responsibility to be strong, to be stable, right? Like to be the person who is kind of being that, uh, you know, yeah, that, that source of security and kind of stability when their partner is going through something that's really hard, right? Like they just had a child, they just carried a baby for nine months, right? Like that's really taxing. Um, and so, you know, I think again, especially in that first uh, chunk of time where I think often, you know, certainly if uh, mom is breastfeeding, there is this sort of disproportionate amount of responsibility, right? Like mom does have to carry a lot more. There's a lot more on mom. And so I, I think often the other parent 
is trying to compensate. They're trying to find the things that they can do to be supportive. Um, and so, yeah, I think sometimes we do start to see those parents who uh, put more emphasis on being strong, not letting other people see the cracks, not letting people see that they're struggling. And again, I think this is something that comes up anytime, you know, if you have a, I don't know, a spouse who has cancer, right? Like, yeah, the cancer obviously is really, really hard. And like, yeah, you feel for them, but like that partner caring for the person with cancer also has their own stuff. And again, it's not a, which is easier, which is harder. That's not really what it's about. It's just noticing hey, these situations, these roles both bring with them their own unique stuff. And so I think being the person who is not bearing the brunt of it also comes with its own set of circumstances that can make things harder. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I am blanking on where I found this, probably in one of my parenting books or relationship while parenting books. Um, and I think we would all agree that especially while the mom is on maternity leave, right? Often um, dads aren't granted that same amount of time. I know my husband had to go back after a week and he felt the financial brunt of the responsibilities, right? So right. Um, I can just imagine, you know, talking about societal roles and obviously that's not always the case. That's not how, always how it kind of evenly distributes across the family, uh, you know, roles and, and such, but I, I'm just curious, you know, if we were to gain more information on these presentations and if we were to actually do the research that I think is needed, it would be really intriguing to see, you know, do moms who breastfeed experience more difficulties with contamination, like around chemicals or fear of like what they're ingesting versus dads who might experience more of that like financial stress and financial obsessions and compulsions as it relates to having to carry the the you know responsibility in that way um, right and yeah i don't know i i think it's always really helpful too to um you know i i think of when i went to you mentioned you know when you go into the professional setting right there's obviously already this fear that what if i say this and then they take my baby away so on and so forth i'm trying right now to imagine if a dad was bold enough or in crisis enough to say something i can't imagine and i hope that this wouldn't be the case but i can't imagine that a professional would be very sensitive to that um you know that i'm really struggling i'm having a lot of anxiety uh, I've been having these thoughts lately. I know my OBGYN, knowing that I was a pretty well-trained, you know, OCD professional in the field in our small community, I elicited to her that I was struggling, that I was having intrusive thoughts, that I was really, really having a hard time. And she told me to just give my son his pacifier. Um, and it just goes to show like how ignorant at times the community can be. So even if they're not, you know, taking, threatening to take my son away or asking about his safety, it was still so incredibly invalidating um, to, to see that. Like, no, I'm telling you that I'm really struggling. This is my experience. Yeah. I need you to take me seriously. And I just felt like I was being laughed at or undermined. I cannot imagine dads having to present to a professional and I hope they're taken seriously, but I don't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not. I would imagine that sometimes professionals might also say like, yeah, dad can't hang, you know, dad, it's another, you know, dads always struggle, you know, think about what your wife is having to do, so on and so forth. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Kind of like if a dad presents himself, what might the reaction be and how could a dad maybe 
push through that to get yeah seen. yeah well I I I think your example I think stands out to speak I think so often there is the spectrum right like that I think that there are parents who are a little worried about things right like I think every, every every new parent is is a little worried about things right like that there is this sort of a uh, degree of this where sure I, I'm sure there is a time and a place where that suggestion of like oh like does your baby need a pacifier like sure that could be useful right like that I, there is a time and a place for that stuff the, the example you gave that was not the time or the place right right like that you were being very clear about saying hey like I, I know what's going on for me I need some help um and so yeah I think I I think with dads I think that there can often be this sort of assumption that they are new to dealing with babies they don't know how to change the diaper they don't know how to burp the baby right like that there is this skill deficit that we just need to address right so if we can just give them a little time to figure out how to change that diaper they will no longer be having those intrusive thoughts about the baby right? and like that's it's not really the skill deficit right like and sure that that may contribute it may be there i'm not saying that that's not a thing but I think so often we can dismiss the actual concerns because we just attribute it to this sort of, you know, normal kind of learning curve. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that does end up being really dismissive and invalidating. And at the end of the day, yeah, people don't get the care that they need when we brush off these concerns. And so, yeah, I think we, we need to listen to parents. I think that's kind of what it boils down to. Um, and I, I think that's, I, I think really how we kind of gauge where do these things become a problem? You know, where, where is it worth addressing? And I think the answer is when that parent's in a bunch of distress, you know, if they're coming in saying, Hey, I'm really struggling. Yeah. We need to listen to them and take it seriously. Yeah. I just, the skill, the word skill deficit, that's perfect. I can imagine these health professionals, you know, with all that society has kind of influenced them to believe about this role and how family systems should work or are, are picturing them to look. Uh, yeah. Like assuming that this dad is just lacking confidence or he feels clumsy or mom needs right. to just give him a little bit more time. And it's like, no, I'm terrified of giving my son a bath because I keep looking at his penis and I keep having thoughts about what if I touch it inappropriately. Right. So yep. and that's not a skills deficit. That's uh, that's, and we can't dismiss it as such because it's just, right. I, I don't want any dad to finally, or any mom for that reason to go and muster up all the courage that it takes to say something and then be dismissed like that. It's just so it's heartbreaking to imagine. So um we talked about some pretty clear, uh, I love like these practical examples because I really want dads or moms out there to know like, oh, wait, I do that. Like, I don't feel so quote unquote crazy anymore. I do that too. Um, maybe this is something. So we talked about, you know, the difficulties with changing diapers. I just talked about the difficulties potentially um, with sexual intrusive thoughts in the bathtub. Um, for anyone who maybe this is the first podcast they've, they've hopped on, can we go over some pretty just practical examples of how these things can show up? And it, it's not just cleanliness or fear of germs. So how else can it right. show up, especially as a, as a dad? Yeah. So I always kind of break this down into a few categories. And that's not to say that any of these things are mutually exclusive or that you can't uh, experience things that 
are in multiple categories or defy all of these categories, right? So everyone's kind of unique here. Um, so intrusive thoughts are always the first thing that that I think about. And so we're talking here about these unwanted, distressing, generally repetitive thoughts that that show up for people. They often have this sort of taboo kind of nature to them. So those are usually violent or sexual when it comes to children. Outside of postpartum, we often throw in things like blasphemous thoughts, and you know there there are other categories here. But you know, I think when it comes to that postpartum OCD kind of experience, we're usually talking about these unwanted, violent, or sexual thoughts. So that could be um, a thought about hurting your child. It could be a thought about doing something sexually inappropriate to your child. Um, and very frequently with these thoughts, I. I I usually see this sort of blurring of categories where there's the intrusive thought and there is also this harm kind of component. So I had this thought about, you know, hurting my child. And what if I act on that thought? What if I lose control? What if there is something secretly buried inside me that will make me act on it? Um, what if when I had that thought, I was not disgusted by it? What if I liked it? What if I was not as upset by it as I should have been, right? So there, there again, we, we start to kind of misinterpret and kind of attribute this meaning to thoughts and then become concerned that it might mean something or we might act on it. Um, so I, I think very often when these kinds of thoughts show up for people, they start trying to do something to make it go away. And so that might be reassuring themselves, that might be avoiding these situations altogether. Um, so I, I, the example that I think about, so I have four kids, three of them are girls. Uh, I've changed a lot of diapers. And so I think one of the things that I see coming up a lot is like, did I wipe too much, right? Like, did I do this past the point where I should have? There's there's a lot of poop in different folds and how do I get it all out? And like, did I do too much? Was that inappropriate? Did I cross that line? And so I I think about this for myself where I, I now I have a lot of practice, but when, I, when we had our first kid, I think that skill deficit idea did apply to me. Right? I had not changed a lot of diapers prior to having kids. Um, and so, yeah, I think there were some of those genuine questions around like, how much do I get in there, right? Like, how much should I go for this? Um, and again, at this point, I've kind of figured that out, but I, there is this gray area. There is uncertainty there. We don't know. And so, yeah, I, I think we are always going to have to address that doubt that shows up where we're not sure which side of that line we fall on. Um, so intrusive thoughts, again, I think often do get blurred with that sort of fear of losing control, fear of doing something to hurt someone. Another really common thing that we see with postpartum OCD is what I usually call kind of uh, harm by neglect, but it, it's essentially that same idea of what if something bad happens, but here it's because I didn't do enough, right? And so I think this is often where contamination can come in, right? So things like, did I wash those bottles thoroughly enough? Did I bring some germs into the house when I came home? What if I didn't wash my hands enough before I picked up the baby, um, right? So I, I think this is, again, a, often looks like a lot of checking, reassurance seeking. Um, sometimes it's Googling what are the appropriate things to do in order to prevent that harm from happening. Um, but again, it's just kind of the other side of the coin of that harm idea. So one, I think, is that we're going to 
actively do something to cause harm and the other is more passive that we're inactively going to not do enough to prevent harm. Um, so, you know, I, I think for me, those tend to be kind of the, the main categories that I see, right? So it's, again, the intrusive thoughts and then these fears about harm and something bad happening to that kid. Yeah, I see it too a lot, um, coinciding with like genuine feelings of frustration or anger, right? Um, so many dads uh, and moms too, they'll, they'll come to me and, you know, they are genuinely frustrated, like they're sleep deprived, there is valid frustration and feelings of frustration there and just you're at your wits end, you know, the crying, the colic, the, the not listening, the getting upset over I gave you a blue cup instead of a green cup and now you've been crying for 10 minutes. Um, yep there's a lot of, it's hard. There's a lot of emotions. And I see so many times, especially dads, uh, you know, they, they have those, what are very normal intrusive images of like, Oh man, I just want to like throw him in his room and slam the door. Mm -hmm. Or I just want to like throw him against the wall or throw him out the window. Um, and that coinciding with that anger, um, can be really scary for a lot of people because it's like, Oh, I had that thought and I'm angry. Like, what does that mean? Um, right. And that it doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? So I think now it's really important for people to understand that these are ego dystonic experiences, right? So right. ego dystonic means that you do not want these things to happen. They um, are inconsistent with your values and your kind of ideal self-image and who it is that you believe and know yourself to be. So you can have these thoughts, you can have these images and still like, no, 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 I that's not me would never act on something like that. I do not want to act on something like that versus something that's more ego syntonic, which is like, you're actually kind of more curious about it and you would be more interested in pursuing that. So this is why it's so important to, to note people who have OCD, moms, dads, whomever, because their experiences are so ego dystonic they're I would say they're actually the least likely to cause harm to their child, right? Like they're actually the least likely to, you know, act out in this way or to text them inappropriately because those actions are so far discrepant with their values and with who it is that they believe they, they want themselves to be as a person. Um, obviously everything is uncertain. Um, but yeah, for the most part, these, these are ego dystonic thoughts. They're inconsistent with their values. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I'll say as a therapist for me, you know, it's always, uh, hard for me to walk this line where I want to communicate what you just said, right? That this is not who we want to be. Again, these thoughts are experienced as intrusive. They're unwanted. They're not in line with who we are. Um, and I always say, right, like that there is no one I would rather have take care of my kid than somebody with, <laughs> with these experiences, right? Somebody who is so concerned about doing something inappropriate. They are so appalled by that upsetting thought that showed up that they are they're tormented by it right and so there's no one I would rather have take care of my kids than somebody who, who is having these experiences um so I, I think it can be hard to convey that point while not not leaning too far into reassuring and you know trying to convince everyone that everything is okay right so at the end of the day we do still need to be uncertain but uh for sure you know I think this is kind of the hallmark of of OCD is that they, they are these unwanted experiences. 
For sure. So you've mentioned before, you're a dad, I'm a mom. Um, this is hard for so many people, but there is clearly lines and ways to kind of um, estimate the degree to which someone is struggling, kind of to what degree they're impaired. So, um, you know, at what point would you say someone out there, if they're listening, you know, that feels like, yep, I checked that box. Yep, I checked that box. Um, but, but they're still kind of doing that litmus test against like other dads, right? Like, oh, well, he struggles too, or, you know, you know, this is just hard for everybody. And they kind of, you know, undermine their own symptoms. What would you tell them or kind of what could they be on the lookout for, for themselves or for their partners? You know, these are some signs that you're struggling and that this uh, could, you, you might benefit from, from talking to a, a professional about it. Yeah. So yeah, there are, I think, a few things that I'm usually looking at. Um, so, you know, I think one is just distress, you know, that I think, obviously, as we've said, parenting is hard for all parents. There are no exceptions that I know of. Uh, so yeah, I, I think there's always going to be some distress. But I think we need to trust in our own experience, you know, that when when we start to feel like that distress is kind of above and beyond what we might typically expect, um, then I think that's a, a good thing to pay attention to. Um, and so I, I, the, this is maybe oversimplified, but I, I think if you are asking the question of, is this distress <laughs> above and beyond what it should be, then it probably is, right? Like if you're in doubt, if you're saying, Hey, I think this is a little more than what, what most people are kind of dealing with. That, trust that, you know, that I, I think that's a pretty good indicator in and of itself, if you're just asking the question. Um, impairment is the other thing that I often look at, right? So is this distress getting in the way, right? That, is it uh, preventing me from being who I want to be, doing what I want to be doing? And again, of course, we're going to account for, hey, like, <laughs> Uh, parenting is kind of impairing, right? Like that it, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It gets in the way of doing what we might have been doing prior to having children. Um, so yeah, that's all going to be there. But the way I often think about it is, you know, is it impairing your ability to parent in the way that you want to parent, right? Like that, it, is it interfering with you being who you want to be, right? So if, if we're, you know, we're thinking about, you know, doing a bunch of compulsions where, we're minimizing risk, we're doing a bunch of checking, right? Like that we're going above and beyond to kind of ensure the safety of our child. Does that still line up with who we want to be as a parent? You know, do we want to be the kind of parent who allows for some risk, you know, who allows for our child to have some experiences um, where there is risk involved, right? So yeah, I think we do want to kind of check ourselves against who do we actually want to be as parents? Uh, I example I think about a lot for myself, uh, which is not necessarily immediately postpartum, but I think uh, kind of goes to show that this doesn't just go away. You know, this exists even as kids get older. Um, but I think about when we we put up a kind of like swing set kind of play space kind of thing in our backyard and it had like a little climbing wall on one side of it. It's kind of steep. It's kind of high, right? Like that I, I had that thought of like, well, like, <laughs> Our kids could fall off of this thing and get hurt. Um, and I, I have, being a therapist and doing what I do, I have resisted the urge to Google, like, hey, how often do kids <laughs> fall off of these things and get hurt? But I'm sure they do. And I, I assume in any given year, 
There are any number of emergency room visits. I assume there are probably even some deaths thrown in the mix for good measure, right? Like that this, this stuff happens. And I had that thought of like, oh, like I have just introduced this risk that wasn't there before, right? Like in a yard full of grass, my kid is not gonna fall whatever, 12 feet down and, and hurt themselves. And so, yeah, I've now introduced this risk but I also think, well, like, what kind of parent do I want to be? Like, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to give your kid a thing to play on in the backyard. I'm, I'm glad that I, I can provide that opportunity and experience for my kids, right? Like that that's, that's who I want to be as a parent. I want to be a parent who lets my kid take some calculated risks. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm kind of getting at and saying, like, are we being the parents that we want to be, right? Like, it's not about just eliminating all the risk. It's about saying, hey, who do I want to be? And have I started to do things that now start to kind of depart from, from that vision of what I want things to look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're bringing up this reminder that I give moms all the times, but dads too, um, that it's not just, I think so many times, parents are like, oh, well, as soon as the baby's here, I won't have anything to be anxious about. So it's fine. Or then, you know, once he's, you know, once he's crawling, then he'll, then it'll be fine. I won't be anxious anymore. But as you are mentioning, right, like this, we just get anxious about different things. We're getting anxious about that. So what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's never too early. Like, I don't really think obviously there's a, an, an issue of cost and issue like very logistically of just access to treatment. But when it comes to these skills, you can always benefit from these skills. You don't have to be in a total crisis type of situation in order to like, okay, cool. You check the box now to be able to get the treatment for it. Um, I think, you know, especially as we zoom out about what exposure and response prevention is, it's that, mm -hmm. right? Like it's teaching us, it's teaching our, our clients, how do you live a life of that you value and that you're calling the shots of instead of allowing your anxiety to dictate that. And I think no matter how distressed or how impaired, you know, whether that's like moderately or very severely, I think everyone can benefit from that if you feel like you're missing a little bit of it. So with that said, for any um, individuals out there who are new or they've never heard about exposure and response prevention, can you just give them a really quick idea? Because as you keep the playground in your backyard, you are kind of doing your own exposure, right? As you resist, you know, checking yeah. online, you are, you are uh, living the exposure lifestyle right now. So as life goes on with this playground in your backyard and your kids continue to play on it, you are one, habituating to it. So you're just naturally getting used to that experience. Two, you are learning that, hey, the likelihood of my kids falling isn't as likely as I thought that it was. And, you know, if it does, maybe they do get hurt, but it's not as catastrophic as them breaking every bone in their body. Maybe they like get a splinter or something or they, they fall but, and they get a bruise, but they don't, you know, catastrophically hurt themselves. Um, but if in the end, Ben, you know, they do get hurt which I hope does not happen, right? You will have <laughs> yeah. that learned experience of we can handle it. And, and yeah. that kind of all of that together is what exposure therapy is all about. So can you just give our listeners a teeny tiny um, little insight into what is exposure and response prevention and why is it so effective for what it is that we're yeah. talking about? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, I love that like really short version of exposure and response prevention is learning. We can handle it. Right. I think that, that, I think summarizes it really nicely, but I, to expand on it a little bit, I, so the basic idea is, so we have 
exposure to some feared thing, right? That there, there is something in our life that our brain has started to connect with danger. We start to feel scared of it. And when we're talking about some of these intrusive thoughts, we're kind of saying, hey, our brain has started to assume that these thoughts are dangerous and that they need to be responded to in a certain way. Um, and so we're now going to say, hey, we're gonna come into contact with those thoughts. We're gonna let ourselves have them, but we're gonna practice this different response to it where instead of now reinforcing that that is indeed dangerous, we're now going to reinforce something different, which is maybe it's, as you said, maybe it's not as dangerous as we thought. Maybe we can actually practice doing some different things. Um, we're, we're going to essentially relearn what we need to do, right? And so I, I, I think when we have an obsession and then we do a compulsion in response to that thing, what our brain learns is you're okay. You made it, you survived, but it's because you did this thing, right? Like that, that is the reason why you're okay, right? So if I touch a doorknob and say, oh no, I'm gonna get sick and I go wash my hands and don't get sick, my brain is learning, that's the only reason you're okay. You went and did this thing and that's why you're all right. And so if we're doing exposure and response prevention, we're gonna go practice touching that doorknob. We're not gonna wash our hands. And now our brain gets to have this sort of reparative experience where, you know, we touch the doorknob, we don't wash our hands, presumably we don't get sick. Um, and now our brain says, oh, right, okay, I get it. It, it wasn't actually the hand washing that was keeping me safe. It's actually that this doorknob is not as dangerous as I thought. Um, and it's not perfect. Again, I've, I've done a, a lot of this stuff and I, I can tell you there are definitely times where I'm like, oh, I just got sick. And like, I was like touching a bunch of stuff the other day. And right like that, like, I, I know it does happen, but I think even then I know like, okay, like if I caught a cold, if I got a stomach bug, like, all right, like it, it's not the end of the world. Um, it, it generally, even if those things happen, as you said, even if, and um, I'll tell you, my kids have fallen down, they have gotten the splinters, right? Like the, the playset is not this perfect bastion of safety like yeah like they are they're getting some bumps and scrapes and it is okay right like they can navigate that and so I, I think what we're really trying to learn here is that we can notice these places where we have behaviors that are actually reinforcing anxiety that they're we, we think that they're keeping us safe but they're actually keeping us stuck in this place where we're, we're continuing to flag this stuff as dangerous and so we can practice having these competing experiences where we start to learn not just that the bad stuff doesn't happen, often the bad stuff won't happen, but not always. Um, but I think it's really about learning, as you said, we can handle it, right? Like that we can be in this place where we're anxious, we're uncertain, and we can tolerate that feeling, right? That we have the capacity to feel it without just making it go away. Um, and in fact, when we do that, it starts to get easier over time. For sure. And you're bringing me back to the title of the podcast, which is, you know, all the hard things. And that's what ERP is really all about. Um, so I'm so glad that you're kind of solidifying that and yeah. uh, bringing it to what is one of our final questions, which is, why do you think it's so important for people to do hard things? I hear from people so many times and actually the inspiration behind the name of the podcast was I was working relentlessly with someone on exposures and um, they were just not making any progress meant well, but just wasn't working. And they asked me, you know, if I had the choice between doing something that was more comfortable and easy 
versus doing it more difficult. Why would I do that? I think the exposure that we were doing was like wearing an item with an uncomfortable, like scratchy fabric. And their, mm -hmm. their defense was like, well, if I could not do it, why would I do this hard thing? And I had a million things to say, but I also had nothing to say. So yeah. and I feel so strongly about it. Like, this is what this treatment is about. It's about being able to do hard things and build your resiliency and your self-confidence and your self-efficacy. So why do you think it's so important for people to do hard things? Yeah. So I've, I knew this one was coming. So I've, I've listened to your podcast before. So yeah, I've been thinking about this one and I I'll tell you, I, I can identify with your client and maybe it's the slacker in me, but I, I, there is, I think something appealing about saying, yeah, like, why would you do the harder thing if you can do the easier thing? And I think my answer to that is like, well, it's like sort of a, that setup isn't really accurate, right? Like that it's, it's not as if these things are actually equal. And I would say like, Hey, if the end result is the same, yeah, do the easier thing, right? Like that. I, I think uh, about that kind of saying of like, you know, don't work hard, work smart, right? Like, yeah, like there, there's no, uh, there's nothing noble about just doing things that are hard and difficult for the sake of doing those things. But again, I think, so here's my, my, my real answer is I, I think doing hard things ultimately is easier, right? So like, I think if we just do the easy stuff, we always choose that path of least resistance, our world is going to get smaller, right? Like that we, we are going to cut ourselves off from a bunch of opportunities to do the things that we care about, the things that are important to us. And when we start to make that little safe bubble, it's going to be really hard. And I think that's the thing is like, if you keep choosing those easy things, it actually gets a lot harder because now you have this life that doesn't have the stuff that you want in it. And so I, I, I think choosing the hard things for me in the long run is actually the easier path in some ways and maybe not in the moment but you know I think when all is said and done if we take that decision and repeat it over and over and over again that's going to be the path that leads us to the stuff that we really want and I think that that ultimately ends up being the life that that is easier and uh, more fulfilling for us. For sure awesome well I could talk to you all day oh my gosh this yeah. is I always say this but this <laughs> is like one of my favorite episodes to have have done. Um, oh. So I'm so excited to get it out there into the world. But before I let you go, where can people find more about you? Where can people stay connected with you or just learn more about you and your private practice? Yeah. So uh, I have a website. It is www.bullcityanxiety.com. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram also at bullcityanxiety. Um, so yeah, either one would be a great way to stay up to date on what I'm up to. Awesome. Well, sounds good, Ben. Thank you so much. I'll make sure that Ben's website as well as uh, the Instagram is in my show notes so you guys can easily access it. But um, Ben, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. And, uh, you know, on like a personal level, this was very helpful. They, they tend to be for me a little bit, but also just I, I'm sure so many dads, so many moms out there are like just super, super thankful that someone is starting to bring this to light. So thank you for helping me do that. Um, and I hope we get to stay in touch and we'll talk soon. Yeah. So so sounds much. great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jenna. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. 
From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.